All right. Good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you uh, here in Worship Center over in the Ridge. Welcome you in. Anyone sore from yesterday? Any? So some of you are like, yeah, I haven't done that kind of thing for a long time. And that's why we arranged it with the government to give an extra hour of sleep last <laughs> night because we just felt like we would need it. I say in the last service, if you make me president, I cannot promise to make America great again, but we would have an extra hour of sleep every Saturday. I would put that in. <laughs> We'll do Congress. I just love that. It. My favorite weekend of the year. Just awesome. Isn't that awesome? It's like you could, I slept long, got up early. It was great. So uh, anyway, so I've got so much energy. We're going to go for hours today. It's just going to be good. So uh, anyway, uh, we're going to go to our time of teaching right now. So inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. And I uh, hope you can take that out. That'll help you follow along. I'm excited about today. So you guys ready to go? Yeah. Let's pray. God, we're just hungry for you. We want more. And God, we thank you what you're doing in our church. We, we thank you for the way you're waking us up, calling us on, giving us this vision of transformation, being changed to be like you, to go out and change the world. We thank you for this weekend, what you've done in our church, in us and through us. And we just want to continue that journey today as we continue the study of your life, your teaching, what it means to be transformed, to be like our Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today uh, in the capital. And uh, they have journeyed here together. They've been together now for the last couple of years, and their team is definitely on the rise. If you were to do sort of a, a public, uh, like a poll, a public opinion poll, uh, their stock is definitely rising. Uh, people are being drawn to them, to their organization, to their movement. Uh, they want to hear more, but at the same time, there is opposition. So there's rising opposition coming from both kind of the political and religious establishment that they're operating in. And so they've come here and they're on increasing uh, scrutiny. So for example, like even in our current day, one political party is kind of getting out ahead. It's, it's got found, found a message that's resonating with the people. You almost know for sure that the opposite party in our day is going to begin to look for dirt, right? They're going to look for some, how, how do you create some scandal? How do you raise some issues? How do you kind of discover something that will take them down a couple pegs and stop this movement? And so that was very much true in their experience. And so while they were on the rise, they were under increasing scrutiny. And on this particular day, the opposition has identified an issue they think will play well in the polls. They're going to spring them on it, sort of a news conference type situation. And, uh, but the whole thing is going to blow up in their face. So today, we are continuing this journey that we've been on now the last few weeks called Unfiltered discovering a higher calling. Now, if you're brand new here at Rocky Peak, not only want to welcome you, but this series is really a series about Jesus. And what we're doing is we're going back in time, back to the first century, uh, back to one of the earliest documents, one of the most important documents ever written about the life and teaching of Jesus. It's uh, one of the first biographies. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. And our goal in this series is to go back in time and the best we can take off some of the cultural filters that are built up over time and then to capture some new images, some fresh images, some unfiltered images of who Jesus really is and therefore what it means to follow him. And so right now, uh, we're in the midst of the most famous message ever given in the history of the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And today we come to, in many ways, the most important verse in the Sermon on the Mount because in many ways it defines, it's kind of like a topic sentence for most of the whole sermon. 
So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn on. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. Dre started looking at this passage last week. He did a great job with it. He saved a little for me. And, uh, and so we're going to pick up where he left off at chapter 5 and verse 17 just to set the stage. And so he said, uh, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And so, of course, the law and the prophets is a way of describing the Hebrew scriptures. So he says, hey, don't think I've come to abolish that. And he said, well, why would they think that? Well, Jesus' teaching, as we'll see today, was so different from the teaching of the religious leaders of his day uh, that people were beginning to wonder whether he was orthodox. Had he come to kind of destroy their whole story as a nation? It, it was he kind of leaving the law and the prophets, the word of God. And so he wants them to understand, no, I have not come to destroy. Not at all. In fact, he says, I've not come to destroy them. I've come to fulfill them. Uh, I like to think of it. I often use this analogy, but in the same way that the final chapters of an epic novel, like a Dostoevsky novel or something, the way the final chapters kind of fulfill the, the, the story of the opening chapters. And so you can look, look back at the end and you say, oh, I see where this story was going and I understand what it was all about. And you even reread the early chapters through new, new lenses. Now you see how the story ends. And so Jesus has not come to abolish, he's come to fulfill, to bring this story to its appointed end and to reveal the true meaning of the law and prophets that was there all along, but often had been missed or not understood or forgotten. And so he goes on then and he says, for truly I tell you, in verse 18, until heaven and earth disappear, the end of time, not the smallest letter or the, sm uh, the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until it's all comes to its appointed end. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so we've, we've seen this, right? That Jesus has come north to the Galilee. He's launched his movement. His, his epic claim is that the kingdom of the heavens uh, that's long been promised by the prophets of Israel for hundreds, a thousand years, it is about to break into time and space. And he's backed us up by his miracles and so on. So now he says, all right, that if you want to be part of this kingdom, you're going to be a person who loves the word. This is not, we're not leaving the word. The word is going to, we're going to see it through new lenses. We're going to understand it in new ways, but, but we're going to be uh, embracing it. And he says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in this coming kingdom. He says, for I tell you, and then here comes our, our big statement of the day, very controversial, huge statement, would have taken them by surprise. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, he's speaking to his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, two of the kind of the leading religious leaders of the day, two of the most influential and respected leaders of the day, who just love the word and kind of embrace the word and followed the word, we'll see later in their own way, but they were seen as the spiritual leaders. He says, unless you're better than them, you're not getting in. He said, so for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. And so he's announcing this kingdom is here, it's near, but he says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, unless you're better than they are, you're not getting in. Now, it's probably hard for us to understand how shocking a statement this would have been. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like their, the teachers of the law were like the biblical scholars of their day. 
The Pharisees were, were some of the most scrupulous followers of the law. I mean, they would never eat a meal without washing their hands for ritual purity. They would tithe not just off of their income and their assets, but they would tithe their, their herb gardens. I mean, these, these guys took the law very seriously, right? And so, so this would be like saying that you have to be better than them. It'd be like talking to a kid in Boston who's 10 years old and grown up in a very conservative Catholic family and loves the Catholic church and loves and goes to mass every week. He'd be like pulling that 10-year-old kid aside and say, hey, uh, unless you're better, more righteous than the priests, the bishop, and the cardinals, you're not getting in. Okay? It would have that kind of emotional impact. Are, are you with me on this? It's kind of like, whoa. So if you're sitting there, you're thinking like, how could we ever be better than them? I mean, they are like up here uh, in terms of the seriousness of them following the law. And so the question is, of course, well, what is Jesus saying? What's his message? And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to be introducing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to be introducing a whole new paradigm of what it means to be a righteous person. And not so much a uh, different paradigm than, say, the Old Testament uh, that's rightly understood, but new in terms of his day and age. That in his day and age, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their paradigm was completely different. All right, so what does it mean to be a righteous person? How would you recognize a righteous person? His view of a righteous person and their view were diametrically opposed. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time talking about this righteousness of the kingdom versus righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what I'm calling a religious righteousness, and we're going to unpack this. So here's what we're going to do. There in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Real Righteousness, the New Paradigm, and I have going two basic principles, right? So we're going to take some of time, unpack this verse, uh, kind of lay it out so we understand what Jesus is saying, and then we're going to come back and ask three really practical questions for our life, right? So here we go. So the first principle goes like this, that kingdom righteousness is higher. Jesus is introducing a new paradigm of what it means to be a righteous man, a righteous woman. And what we're going to see, it is so much higher, it is so much broader, it is so much deeper than their concept of what a righteous person would be like. Now, to get at this, I want to give you three contrasts, all right? So there in your note sheet, you have two columns. And the left column, you've got, you have religious righteousness. That's what I'm calling the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. On the right column, you have kingdom righteousness, Jesus' view of what it means to be righteous. And we're going to contrast those, all right? So for each bullet, I'm going to give you two words to contrast. So let's jump in. So the first bullet, we're going to contrast. On the left column, let's write the word external and on the right side, write the word internal. Okay, so in the religious righteousness, external. On the right column, under kingdom righteousness, internal. All right? So this was the basic difference. When the Pharisees thought in terms of righteousness, there's a tendency to focus on outward actions. Right? That they would measure someone's righteousness by their outward actions, and you know many of them. And, and, of course, Jesus tended to measure righteousness by our internal heart. As you think of this, he always measured it by the heart. So let me give you an example. 
The last week of Jesus' life, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. This is recorded in Matthew 23. We'll be there in about the year 2025. <laughs> and uh, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he is, uh, this is the last week of his life. He's going to die a few days from now. And so this is his last shot to kind of call out the Pharisees and teachers of the law and to really kind of bring an indictment against them, uh, kind of his last shot to bring them to repentance, right? So he's going to give this, this very famous passage, uh, Matthew 23, where he gives seven woes, okay? Like an Old Testament profitable, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Uh, these are like saying you're under the judgment of God, uh, your future is doomed, right? Unless you repent. So he gives seven woes. And in that passage, we get insight into the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, how they approached righteousness. And so if you look at their first passage there, we'll actually look at this a couple times today, but he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Again, catch, same group. So teachers of the law, or again, were like biblical scholars, okay? They would spend all their time studying the word, but also studying the man-made rules and traditions we call the oral law. We'll talk about that later. So they were very, they were scholars. The Pharisees were a lay group, started as a lay group, but they took the word very seriously, and we'll talk more about that. So, what do you teach us the law and Pharisees? You, what, what's the next word? Okay, be sure to circle that. We'll come back to that in a minute at the next point. You hypocrites, he said, here's the problem. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So he uses a simple analogy. So I want you to imagine you go to a really fine restaurant. You go down to Malibu, you go to Dukes, you go to some of And so while you're there, you're looking down at your dishes and uh, you notice that they're dirty. Right? The outside's really clean, but the inside's dirty. So you call the maitre d' or you call your waiter and say, hey, I, I don't know what happened here, but these didn't make the dishwasher or something. And said, hey, no, we're in a cost-cutting mode. We want, to give, uh, we want to give value. What we've noticed is the outside rarely gets dirty. It's just the inside. But hey, you use the inside again every time. So we just reuse it. Like you'd be going, what? It's like, I care more about the inside than the outside. That's what you're eating. Right? So the Pharisees were experts at focusing on the outside. And Jesus said, the, your problem with you, it's not the outside, it's the inside. And so he says, so you're clean on the outside, but inside you're full of, look at these character qualities, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Now the Pharisees were full of a lot of things, but, uh, but here he's focusing on greed and self-indulgence, all right? So as we go through, and all seriousness, there's other things that are full of that he could have said. He just gives them a couple examples here. He said that you, you don't live a generous life. You're all about money. You're all about wealth. You'll rip off people to get it. You'll even rip off widows to get their stuff. You'll, you'll not uh, take care of your parents because you're like saying it's for God. Uh, you're, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So he said, you look good on the, you're focused on the outside, not the inside. Jesus is always concerned with the inside. For Jesus, change has to happen on the inside. True change always starts on the inside. And if you change the inside, it will eventually change the outside. Okay? So he goes on and he says, blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Right? So if you're changed on the inside, then the outside will change naturally. Like if it's a good tree, it will produce good fruit. A bad tree, bad fruit. 
right? Okay, so that's first contrast. Second contrast, on the left-hand column, write image. On the right-hand column, write reality. So the Pharisees were very concerned about their image. They wanted to be seen as righteous. And so they're very into their image, but they were not into reality, just an image. Jesus is always concerned about reality. He's concerned about who we are in the dark when no one's there. Because who you are in the dark when no one's there, it will get played out in the light. So at the beginning of that, um, you know, that passage we just looked at, remember I had you circle the word hypocrite, right? So hypocrite was a technical term in the time of Jesus. It's not for us now. But a hypocrite was someone in a, in a play, when you were doing a play, in the ancient world, they didn't have female actresses. Uh, all the act, all, uh, there was only men actors. So men would play different roles of men, but also women. And they would have different masks that they would put on their face as they play different role. That was a hypocrite. A hypocrite was someone who's playing different roles. And so Jesus says, he uses that term from the, the world of plays, and he says, the Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're pretending to be something you're not. You're all about image. And so this is how he puts it at the beginning of that Matthew 23. He said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they all sit in Moses' seat. For those of you who have been to Israel, you may remember we see a Moses' seat um, there at Magdala on the Sea of Galilee. It's, uh, this was actually a stone chair where the rabbi or whatever would teach from and so um, they said so they sit in that teaching chair, and so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. In other words, when they're reading the word to you, you need to do what the word says. He said, but do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They're concerned about image and looking righteous. This is why in the next chapter in Matthew 6, uh, when he goes on this sermon, he says, when you do your righteousness before men, like when you pray, when you give alms, he said, don't do it for people to see. That's what the Pharisees do. They're all into image. Okay? Now, the third contrast is between tradition and word. Okay, the third contrast, on the, right, on the left, hand, left side, we're going to put the word tradition, right side, the word word. And so, Here's what happened. This happens in religious circles of all kind all the time. It happens in Christian churches too. Is that often there's a, re a renewal or a revival movement, right? And, and during a renewal or revival movement, people say, hey, we need to get back to the word. We need to pursue God with an honest heart. And so we begin to really pursue. And throughout, throughout history, there's been these movements. But if you study these things, they always go bad over time. Because as a fallen race, we, we have just this natural pull to the dark side, even when it comes to God. And so we'll take the things of God and mess them up. And so, uh, so what happens is that the Pharisees had started off, the best we understand them, a couple hundred years before Jesus, with a group called the Hasidim, the holy ones. They wanted to get back to the word and listen to the word and follow the word. And, and it started like that. But over time, this movement degenerated and they became more concerned with their man-made rules and rituals and interpretations than the word itself. Now, this happens in Christian circles too, doesn't it? Like, uh, I can think of a day where uh, pretty much every church who took the Bible seriously, that so many of them is like, hey, well, you can't dance, you can't drink, you can't wear certain kind of clothes, you can't have this kind of hair, you can't... When you say, well, why, where in the word does it say that? Well, it doesn't say that, but... This is just what you need to do. 
And so we've all been there. We've seen that, right? This natural tendency we have to add to God's word, which is the height of what religion's about. We add to God's word, and over time, the rules that we add become more important than the word itself to where the rules swamp the word. And this is what happened to the Pharisees. They had all these these laws, we call them the oral laws, that became so important about every part of life, and they became so important they even swamped out the word. So like one example is given in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7. And this is the story we started the day with. We started the day with the story of this uh, leader and his movement uh, comes to the capital, right? This is Jesus and his men, rising popularity, and yet they're coming in increasing opposition from both the religious and political establishment of the Jewish leaders who see him as a threat. And so they're looking to discredit them in any way with the public. Well, if you could prove that Jesus wasn't taking the word seriously, like we talked about in 517, that he was a heretic, that would be a way of undercutting, okay, so see, he's not really one of us. He doesn't really love the word. And so as they're watching, they're looking for what can they throw, what kind of dirt can they throw on Jesus? And they notice that his disciples, probably Jesus too, but they probably just don't want to take on Jesus. It's easier to criticize the disciples. But they, that his disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Now, there's nothing in the word that says you have to wash your hands before you eat. Right? I know that a lot of mothers think there is, but there's nothing in the word that says that. And so uh, there's nothing in the word, but the, the Pharisees and teachers had developed all these elaborate washing rituals, cleansing rituals, washing your hands, washing pots in a certain way, kind of like kosher developed, you know? Like there's nothing in the word about kosher, but that became a huge thing, right? And so it's all these kind of man-made rules had developed, and so uh, I won't go into this whole story, but they bring this up to Jesus, hey, why don't your disciples follow, and this is their quote, the traditions of the elders, these man-made rules. And so Jesus says, yeah, well, what, what about you? How come you follow your traditions and you let go of the word of God? And so he challenges them. He gives them a specific example. I just don't have time to go into that you can read about it in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. But this is how he ends that conversation, and it's enough for us today. He says, Mark 7, he says, you have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. So he said, this is the problem, is that you've let go of what God has said, but you're holding on to what you have said. And so as we go through the Gospel of Matthew and we see these conflicts between Jesus and the the Pharisees and teachers of the law, what we'll see time and time again, it'll be these issues. External over internal. Image over reality. Uh Uh-huh. All right. You like that point. Yeah. Tradition over word. Time and time again, that's what we'll see playing out. And so what I want you to catch is Jesus comes and saying, hey, I want to I introduce a new definition of what it means to be a righteous person. Are, are you with me? In other words, that, hey, this is what you've been taught in your culture by your, the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law. This is what you've been taught. You've been taught a whole paradigm of what it means to be a righteous person. And I'm telling you, if you're not any better than that, you're not getting in. That whole paradigm is wrong. 
And so he's going to introduce a new definition of what does it mean to be truly righteous. But for us to understand this, and remember again, 520, this verse about righteousness is the key to understanding the whole Sermon on the Mount from this point on at least to 712. We have to spend some time talking about what the word righteousness means. Because in our culture and in our Christian culture, we have got to take some filters off today if we're going to understand what they would have understood when Jesus talked about this greater righteousness. So this leads to point number two. So uh, point number two goes like this. Righteousness is not a bad word. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean? I don't think it was a bad word. Well, let me just hang in there uh, for a couple minutes, and we'll get there what I mean by this. He said, uh, for us today, righteousness, let's talk about how righteousness, the word righteousness, is used in our culture today. First of all, would you agree with me, this is not outside of church or Christian or religious circles. Would you agree with me that the word righteousness is not used much in our culture today? Like, when was the last time you heard NBC or CBS or Fox, you know, they're doing a news report, hey, this person is a righteous person, you know? I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But, uh, but you know, it's like, when was the last, hey, this is a really righteous regime, you know? Uh, this is just a really righteous corporation. Hey, this, this uh, entertainer did a really righteous thing. We just don't use that language. That's not part of our vocabulary as a culture. If we do, unless you're like an old surfer, right? It's like, righteous, dude. Yeah. But anyway, uh, like we don't really use that language today. Um, and if we do use it, it's usually in religious setting, and it's usually kind of almost has a negative connotation. So for example, if I were to say, if I were to describe in our culture, like in the workplace, oh, I love my boss, he's such a righteous guy. I think most people would kind of see that as a rule keeper, right? Sort of a, not necessarily a positive, it'd be kind of a rule keeper. Um, in fact, in our culture, the most common way the word righteous is used is in a negative way because we say someone is self-righteous. Are you with me? So in our culture, the word righteous is not really used much, and when it is used, it's kind of negative connotations. Um, But what I want you to catch is in the ancient world, this was not the case. In the ancient world, the word righteousness, in the Greek, the word is dikaiosune, or the, the, the adjective dikaios, was a very positive, full of energy words. Let me give you a couple examples. So this is going to be a little bit academic here, all right? So I'm just warning you. The next three minutes, do not glaze over on me, all right? So this is going somewhere. It's going to be important, all right? This is important. We have to redefine this word if we're going to understand the vision of Jesus for our lives. And so we're going to take some filters up. So in the ancient world, let's, let's talk about Plato. I told you, here we go. No, but talk about the philosopher Plato, Greek philosopher, right? 400 years before Jesus. He writes a very famous treatise called The Republic. The Republic is a description of ideal society. From his perspective, if society, what it's at is ideal, it was a wise and good and the best possible society, here's how it would be lived out. This is called The Republic. Right? So, of course, as part of writing this vision of The Republic, Plato has to describe the ideal citizen. 
the person who would be good and right and true, the noble man, the courageous person, the person that would take to create the great society. Are you with me? So guess how, what the word is that Plato uses to describe the ideal person. There you go. Dikaios, dikaiosune. The, the righteous, the noble person that would be the ideal of the human race. Let's move forward a little bit in time. Let's go 100 years earlier to the year 300, uh, approximately 300 BC. And it's time for the Hebrew scriptures to be translated for the first time into Greek. Right? And so they have to take this very rich concept in Hebrew of righteousness. Okay, so think of the man Job. He was a righteous man. What does that mean? Job was a good man. He loved his family. He loved his community. He loved the poor. He defended the orphans. He provided for widows. Right? He was a man who was faithful to his wife. He was a good man. In the Hebrew would say he is a righteous man man in that full-bodied sense. And so when we move, we're going to translate the Hebrew concept of righteousness, this, this thing that God is a righteous God and people, these are, Job is a righteous man. How do you communicate that in Greek? Dekaiosune. Dekaios. You see? So by the time we come to the New Testament, the word righteous is not a negative word. It doesn't refer to rule-keeping. It's not narrow. It's not about what you don't do. It's what you do do. It's who you are. You are the kind of person we were created to be. And so when we step into this, the New Testament and Jesus says your righteousness has to be greater, we can't hear it in terms of rule keeping. We have to hear it in his picture, this vision for this higher life that we were created to live. Now, this becomes even a greater challenge for us who are Christ followers. So if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, understanding dikaios or dikaiosune becomes even a greater challenge because in Christian circles, Bible-believing Christian circles, we do use the word righteous, but usually in a very limited sense. We use righteousness like this. No one is righteous, no, not one. All my righteousness as, as filthy rags. And so when we talk about righteousness, more often than not, what we're saying is we are not righteous, and it's because of Christ's righteousness and his death on the cross, we can be made right with God. Now catch this, that is a true statement. That we are we are able to be made right with God, not based on our performance, based on the, the performance of Christ. Absolutely true. But men and women, that is only half the gospel. The reason Jesus came and died for you and me is not simply so we can be forgiven and made right with God, not based on our performance, but on his. But he came to die so that we could be transformed and turned into truly righteous people. The people we were created to be. People who are generous and kind 
and loving our neighbor and loving our enemies, people who love our spouses and create healthy marriages, people that are people of integrity, people who know how to do right relationships. Jesus' vision of righteousness is huge. In fact, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, he defines righteousness as becoming like our Father. And so what's going to happen in this sermon, he says, hey, unless your righteousness becomes greater than the scribes and Pharisees, it's, it's not just external, it's not about image, it's not about rules, it is about becoming like your father. And if that transformation doesn't happen in your life, you can't be part of the kingdom. And so what's going to happen is that now that he's made this, he's kind of dropped this bomb. Is you have to be great, your righteousness has to be great. Guess what? He's going to give us now six examples of what the Pharisees' righteousness, religious righteousness looks like, and what kingdom righteousness that looks like our Father. So, for example, next week, I'll just give you a little, little you know, trailer. Right? Uh, so, next week, he'll say, hey, in the past, this is how you looked at righteousness. As long as I don't kill anybody, I'm a righteous man. <laughs> hey, I kept the law. I may have wanted to kill him, but I didn't. Had the knife out, but I put it back. I'm a righteous man. And Jesus says, no, you're not righteous. You're broken. When you have that hatred in your heart for someone, when you would if you could, when you want to run them off the road, when you want to get them back, when you want to hurt them, you are not righteous. You are broken. And I have come to make you right so you're like your father to where you actually love your enemies. That's how we define rightness where I come from. Are you with me? An incredible vision. Incredible vision that Jesus' vision is we'd be restored to the people we were created to be, that we'd be truly made right, that the bones that are broken would be set, and that we would become sons and daughters of the living God. And so the way he ends these six illustrations of what true righteousness looks like, he says, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We've got a new state. The kingdom righteousness is the righteousness of our Father. And that's his higher calling. And that's his vision. You and I were designed to be so much more. And so our standard of what it means to be right is so low. He says, your old standard is all, you know, kill Joe, you're a righteous man. No, if you want to kill Joe, something's wrong. All right, so this leads to three questions in our lives. And by the way, you know, before we go there, let me just say this. I'm kind of debating, but I think I'm going to do it. Uh, be, uh, once we get this and we kind of take the old filters off righteousness, right, that we, we see it for how deep and rich and high it is and how Jesus came not just so we'd be right with God but truly made right, we see it, once you take those filters off, you see it throughout the New Testament constantly. I just want to give you three examples. There on your note sheet, those verses there, 
Romans chapter 6. Of course, Romans is all about how we're made right with God through the death of Christ, right? First five chapters are all about that. But when he gets to chapter 6, he says, so, so now we've been made right with God. What's the next step? What's this about? And he says, so verse, uh, he says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of what? Righteousness, you see? Yes, we're made right with God through the death of Christ, but, but as a result of that, we receive the gift of his spirit so we can then offer our bodies to live life the way it's supposed to be lived. Look at Ephesians 5. You were once darkness before you came to the Lord. You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and what? Yeah, righteousness, dikaisune, in truth. That's why I often say here at Rocky Peak, we want to become people that embrace what is good and right and true. It comes from Ephesians 5. Um, you look at the next verse, 1 John 3. It's evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Who, whoever does not practice what? Dikaisune, right? Um, is not of God. He says, you may claim you've come to Jesus and you love Jesus and you know Jesus and you've been saved. He says, but if you're not living a life of Dikaisune, you're just fooling, you're fooling yourself. He said, because once you come into the kingdom and you bow the knee to your true king, something happens to you and God begins to work a new change in your life and you begin to grow and Dikaisune begins to happen in your life. And so if you're living a life where you're claiming the name of Jesus, but you're, you're not, we don't see Dikaisune, we don't see love of your neighbor in your life. He says, something is wrong. And so, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. He said the kingdom has come where we're going to turn all wrongs to right. And guess what? It starts with us. And it starts with the inside of us. That we would be changed. And that we would become Dikai Sune. Have Dikai Sune in our life. All right? So that leads to three questions then. All right. So number one. The first question is how are you measuring your maturity? So as a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, how do you measure your spiritual maturity? This is sort of a way of asking what the Pharisees say. How do you measure your righteousness? Now, what I want you to catch today is that the Pharisees saw themselves as very righteous, right? Um, But the reason they were able to see themselves this way is because they were measuring their rightness with the wrong ruler. So if you measure your, like for example, if your scale is broken and you get on it and you've lost 30 pounds, you're not really healthier. You just have a broken scale, right? And what the Pharisees have done, they have rewritten what it meant to be righteous. So instead of measuring righteousness by how much generosity and sacrifice is in your heart, remember what Jesus said, on the inside is greed and self-indulgence. So instead of measuring righteousness by how much generosity and service is in your heart, they measure it by washing of hands. Well, now you appear righteous, but you're using the wrong standard. You're using the wrong instrument. And so the question is, how in your life do you measure your rightness, your maturity, whether you're growing? And see, the thing is that this can happen in Christian circles too, is that we can start measuring our maturity with the wrong ruler. 
For example, we can measure it by our attendance and participation. This happens all the time. I must be mature. I go to church at least a couple times a month. I'm in a life group, and I, I do my homework every once in a while. Um, I, you know, I serve in a ministry. Uh, I even went to all serve three years in a row. I got the badge. So I'm, I am righteous. I am mature. What, what we're doing, we measure that way. We're measuring the externals, not the internal. Are you growing to become like Jesus? Are you growing in your love? Are you growing in your generosity? Are you growing in your humility? Are you growing in your compassion? Are you growing in your purity? Are you growing in your courage? See, these are measuring with the right, with the right ruler. And so this is crazy because this can lead to disaster spiritually when we measure our maturity with the wrong ruler. Let me give you an example. Um, no show of hands here. I said that last night and then someone got done. And did, yes, um, but... Um, this is a rhetorical question, but have you ever known someone who sees himself as very spiritual? Maybe you work with them, they're in your extended family or something. They see, wherever they go, they want everyone to know that they're a Christian. Yet the reality is, the best thing they could do to advance the kingdom of God would be to keep quiet about it. Have you ever known someone like this? Like, oh, could you just not let people know that you're a Christian? Just say, say you're Muslim, say you're Buddhist, say you're something else, because you're killing us here, right? <laughs> you're just killing us. So just pretend to be an atheist, just anything but a Christian, right? Because they see themselves as, they see themselves as very, wherever they go, they're leaving tracks, or they're talking about church, just dropping in every conversation, or but the reality is they're full of bitterness. They're gossipy. They're the last one to volunteer for the hard jobs at work. They're lazy. They slander. Um, they're self-absorbed. They're self-righteous. They're judgmental. And yet in their own eyes, they see themselves as really mature believers. And you say, how could that happen? How could someone who claimed to follow Jesus for so long be so unlike Jesus? Can I tell you something? I'm not naming names here. I see it at Rocky Peak sometimes. And not very often, but I'll see it here at Rocky Peak. Just some crazy behavior from someone that's like, are you kidding me? Like, how do you come here? How do you come here, listen to the teaching, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and then be that mean-spirited or that bitter over time, that self-righteous, that, you know, like what is not connecting? And you say, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens when we measure our maturity with the wrong ruler. When we're measuring by the external and we're measuring by image and we're measuring by rituals and rules, even by participation, and we're not measuring by our character, it's easy to deceive ourselves. And so, how are you measuring? Number two, the second question is, what are you pursuing with passion? You're like, what are you pursuing? You know, you can tell a lot about a person by their passions. For example, let's say that a man says, 
that my family is a top priority in my life. That they, nothing's more important than my family. But you talk to the wife, you talk to the kids, and they say, Dad's never home. We get it. He's you know, got an important job. And what about, he's, it's always the job first. It's just really clear. We all understand that. It's, it's ever between us and the family. It's always going to be the job. And so in their mind, super clear. So on the one hand, he's saying that he's passionate about his family, but the reality is his priorities are showing something else. And so it's, it's easy to deceive ourselves, and if you can discern someone's passions, it's a window into their soul. You show me what you're most passionate about, I can tell you, I, it's a vision to your heart. I can see your heart. What's interesting to me is when Jesus talks about dikasune, this vision of this greater righteousness, who are to be, to be like our Father, he'll talk about dikasune five times in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting to me is at least three of them, strong sense of passion associated with dikasune. You know, we have our next step dessert at our house every month, and so I get to meet um, all these great new people that God's bringing to Rocky Peak. And um, one of the things we share with them after we get to know their stories, we share a little bit about our vision and values. And so I share our vision. And I talk about this, that, that our vision at Rocky Peak is to unleash a movement of what? What do we say? Passionate Christ follows. Right, passionate Christ And so what I tell them is that at Rocky Peak, we don't care where you're coming from. We don't care if you're coming from the dark side and your life has just been one of great rebellion and darkness. We don't care if you're agnostic or atheist. We don't care if you're super church or love Jesus. We don't care where you're coming from. But we do care where you're going. And I tell them, we have a vision for your life. And I want to be straight up about it. That our vision is to help you grow and become passionate follower of Jesus. So if you want a church that's going to let you sit and be comfortable, you want a church that's going to be not challenge you, you need to look somewhere else because we have no interest in that. The way we look at it is that either Jesus is who he says he is, that he deserves everything we have, or he's not who he says he is, and he deserves nothing, and we should close up shop and go play golf. And so we have a vision for your life. And we're going to come at you. We're going to challenge you. We're going to resource you. And we're going to encourage you. We're going to love on you. But, but our vision is that you would become passionate about Jesus Christ and his vision for your life. And what you see as you study the life of Jesus is he's a passionate man and he calls us to passionate lives. We're not created for boredom. We're not created for mediocrity. We are created for passion. And we will never be alive until we discover the top passion we were created for. Like there's all kinds of passions in life. I've got all kinds of, I I love to learn and I love to read and I love to hike and I love to ride my motorcycle and I like my my family and not in that order. But anyway, I love them all, right? (laughs) But there's one passion that rules it all, right? There's one passion that rules it all. To know him, to love him, to please him. What's your top passion? What is your one passion that rules them all? This is what you were created for. And until we're there, we will always be bored and unsatisfied. Because we were designed for him. And until we're running on him, there's always going to be a boredom. At the deepest part of our soul. 
And so when you look at what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, look at a couple of examples. 5, 6, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those. Remember, blessed means uh, path to the good life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dekahasune. You ought to live the blessed life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dekahasune. Look at the next one, very famous passage. <coughs> Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his dekahasune. It's his top passion, top priority. Seek this first before anything else in life. Seek his kingdom, what he's doing in your life. Seek his rightness. His dekahasune. Become the person you're created to be. Come under his leadership. Let him change you and transform you. Become like your father. Make that your top goal to join him to go out and bring his kingdom to the world. Make that your top thing. And so the question is, in your life, what are you pursuing? What are your top passions? The third question. Who are you trusting for your transformation? Now, this is such an important question. Um, can I tell you something? Uh, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, these next five weeks, it's going to humble us. Uh, one thing you can say about the Pharisees is their whole approach to righteousness, transformation, it was a self-improvement program. They would have loved Oprah, right? They, it was all about for them, hey, let's define righteousness in such a way we can attain it. Let's lower the bar. We're not going to measure by greed. We're not going to do that. No, we'll measure by washing hands. Let's lower the bar. Let's make it achievable. And then we can achieve righteousness on our own so we can come before God and say, I am righteous. I'm one of your chosen people and I have followed the law and I'm righteous. So for them, uh, it was a self-achievement kind of program. But what we're going to see is once you rightly define righteousness, once you see God's vision for what it means to be truly made right, it is so high, it is so deep, it is so broad that it'll take your breath away. Once you see his vision, you're going to go, no way. It is going to humble us so much that two things are going to happen. First of all, we're going to understand with a fresh, a new awareness why we need a savior. Like, as long as you think righteousness is here, you go, well, maybe if I run and jump high enough, I can do that. Once righteousness is at the ceiling, good luck. And so once Jesus says, oh, you want to be right? Well, right means not just loving your neighbor. It means like loving your enemies. That sounds really cool until you have one. <laughs> and then I want to kill him. Uh, and even just to pray to change my attitude is a major spiritual war. Uh, and, so, and so Jesus, as he defines what we were created to be, true rightness, what it looks like, it's going to be humbling, and the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to understand with a fresh awareness why Jesus had to die. Because there is no way we can go before God with our resume and think that somehow we're getting in. Like, we need a Savior. Right? But here's the second thing. Once we understand his vision of righteousness, and once we understand what he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting in. Once we realize his vision for our life, we're going to realize there is no way I can do that on my own. That's impossible. And, what's, and what we're going to be challenged with is, well, who are you trusting for your righteousness? 
Are you trusting yourself to transform yourself? Hey, by your Bible reading and prayer? Good luck with that. (laughs) The best it's going to do is make you a little more self-righteous. But you're still going to be a mess. Because when the standard goes to the ceiling, you start realizing like, hey, something supernatural has to happen here. If I'm going to leap that, that tall building in a single bound, like I need more than a blue cape. I need something to happen, right? And so it's a, it's a powerful thing. And of course, this is what the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. They had said that one day when the kingdom came, God was going to do something supernatural and change us from the inside out, what we could never do for ourselves. Like there in your note sheet in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, remember that word, new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So Mount Sinai with Moses. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So this is the covenant I will make with it. The house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their what? Their hearts. So the old law was written on tablets of stone. He says, a day is coming when I'll enter into a new covenant with my people, write it on the heart. Supernatural. Look at the next one, Ezekiel 36, very similar. He says, when the kingdom comes, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see? He says, when, when the kingdom comes, he says, the problem was the old covenant was I could tell you what to do, but you didn't have the power to do it. So when the new covenant comes, I'm not just going to forgive you, I'm going to change you from the inside out, and by the power of my spirit, I'm going to make you a different person. And so now remember what Jesus said the last night he was with his men at the Passover. They're celebrating the great deliverance from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And remember what Jesus said as he passes the cup. Remember that? This is the new covenant in my blood. What he's saying is it's D-Day. It starts today. And the next day, he would go to the cross to initiate the new covenant, which is not simply the forgiveness of sins. It is the power of transformation by the work of his spirit. And that's why here at Rocky Peak, we talk so much about listening and following because the question is, who are you trusting for your transformation? Like if your view of the Christian life is, I've come to Jesus and trusted him for my righteousness, so I'm right with God, but now I'm on my own to change myself, good luck with that. You see, the message of the gospel is, I've been made right through the death of Christ, And now he's put his spirit in me. And as I listen and follow his spirit, he will do for me what I cannot do for myself. The life that I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is not I, but Christ in me, right? And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna watch as Jesus says, here's the old paradigm of what righteousness was. Here's the new vision. And as you listen and follow me and come into my kingdom, this is who I'm going to change you into as you follow me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we just thank you for this incredible vision of recreation, that in the words of Paul, that we would become like our creator, that we reestablish the image of the creator in our life, we become like our father. And so, Father, we, we pray that as we come before you, God, that we would embrace this new paradigm, that we would not measure our righteousness in the old ways. We'd measure them by the heart and by who we're becoming and by the transformation and by our character. And God, we pray that as we come before you, as we pursue you, we pray, God, that you would unleash this passion in our lives. We pray that you'd show us, here are the steps, here are the things that when we pursue these things, our passion for your kingdom and your dikai sune increase and hear the things in our life, whether they're right or wrong in themselves, irrelevant, but as we pursue those things, we lose our passion for your kingdom and dikaiosune. You would teach us the difference, how to come under your leadership, and most of all, Lord, we pray you'd teach us to trust you, not simply for our eternal righteousness before you, but for our present righteousness and transformation through the work of your spirit. And so God, we thank you for this higher vision, this deeper calling, and we pray now as we come and worship, as we bring our gifts and our offering, we pray that you would use them to transform us, our lives, and this place into a place of the goodness of the high calling, and that we lead, help us to discover in our own lives and for those that you bring, this higher calling you have on our life. We pray this in your name. You'll lead me higher, and you will lead me deeper. This is his vision. It's how this passage flows. You are the light of the world. Don't think I've come to abolish the past. I've come to fulfill the story. My vision for your life is a new rightness, the rightness you're created for. Let me give you six examples. It's how this whole passage rolls. And so we're going to be coming in the next weeks. We're going to be looking at six powerful areas. I mean, looking at right relationships. We're going to be looking at his vision for sexuality. He's going to be looking at what true rightness looks like in marriage. We're looking at integrity. We're looking at how we respond to retaliation, how we respond to our enemies. And in the end, he's going to cap it off saying, this is the vision. You become like your father. So it's going to be a great journey. I hope you can be with us every week as we go along. But uh, today as we wrap up uh, in both of our worship venues here and over in the Ridge, to my right and to your left is uh, some prayer stations, some people over there with uh, prayer badges on, name tags. If you need prayer for anything today, I encourage you to go and get that. And then until next week, may you be embracing this vision for your life that is higher and deeper and richer than we ever could imagine. That his vision for us is so much bigger than we could think that we would be transformed to be like our Father again by the power of his Spirit. And so may this be a week we embrace that vision. We listen, we follow, and we follow him higher and deeper. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next weekend.